Let's pray. Almighty God, we do thank you that you are a God of infinite mercy and compassion, that you have redeemed us in Christ, and in him you provided for all of our needs. We thank you for the perfect rest that is ours in the rest giver, for the day of rest that he has granted unto us. And now as we look at what your word says about the change of that day, we pray that again your spirit will be our teacher and give us understanding and insight into your word and give us grace to see it applied to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, we are at something of a theological climax that was summarized quite uh, well for us uh, by a lady that I'll leave unnamed but said, well, what you've done so far is you've left us with uh, no day, that you've removed the, um, uh, the seventh day, but I'm sure not convinced about any other day. Well, that's good. That's good pedagogy. We haven't gotten there yet, but uh, at least some of you are anticipating uh, that, that um, uh, at least an attempt to show you why we now worship on the first day of the week. For those of us that are just here, we have looked at uh, the Sabbath as a creation ordinance to see that it is a perpetually binding moral law of God, that it's structured in the fourth commandment so that we might uh, have our lives freed up in order to uh, sanctify the day and serve God in it that it has special promises attached to it in Isaiah 58, 13, and 14, that uh, Christ does not do away with the Sabbath in the Gospels, but rather does away with the Jewish traditions and frees the Sabbath. And then we saw in the last hour that the Apostle Paul does not do away with the Sabbath, but he does away with the Old Testament Sabbath and ceremonial Sabbaths. So we find ourselves now at the place of the Confession of Faith in chapter 21, paragraph 7, with reference to the Sabbath, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. And from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Now perhaps a number of you like me in the past, have wrestled right here at this point with this statement in the Westminster Standards where they speak with such a certainty that from the, uh, the first day of the world until uh, the ministry of Christ, it was the seventh day from the resurrection of Christ to the end of the age, it is on the first day. How did our fathers come to this conclusion that it was the first day? How did the early church uh, reach that conclusion that they were to worship on uh, the first day of the week? Uh, much of the argument is inferential, although we recognize that that which comes from inference is as binding as that which is directly stated. I need but remind you the doctrine of the Trinity. There's no place in the Bible that spells out the doctrine of the Trinity, but uh, when we understand that certain things are true, the uh, unity of God, the oneness of God, the deity of Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit, we are driven to a doctrine of the Trinity. And many come to the uh, 
the doctrine that the first day of the week is the Christian Sabbath by inference, and that's not invalid. But I believe that there is a clear New Testament statement about the Sabbath and the Sabbath on the first day of the week, and that's in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. The book of Hebrews, as you know, was written because uh, there were Jewish Christians tempted to return to Judaism, which had such uh, glorious forms. It was tangible. You could feel it. You could smell it. And under the, uh, the pressure and persecutions, uh, people were tempted to go back into Judaism. And the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote this book to warn people on the one hand, of the dangers of returning to Judaism because it was the inferior covenant that was but typical of what was to come and that if they did return to Judaism, they would be renouncing the faith. And with that warning comes as well this glorious statement of the superiority of Christ in um, every aspect over the angels, over Moses, over Aaron, over the temple, and Christ's covenant is thus a superior um, covenant. Now, in chapter 4, we have part of an exhortation that actually begins in chapter 3, verse 7, and goes through at least verse 13 of chapter 4. Uh, an exhortation now addressed to these uh, professing Christians who are tempted uh, to return to Judaism. The exhortation itself captures a major theme of the book, and that is that uh, there's a twofold aspect of salvation, uh, what some call the already and the not yet. That the book of Hebrews establishes the fact that Christ has accomplished salvation, eternal life, rest has all been accomplished by Christ, and we've already begun to participate in it. And thus, we live in the reality and not in the shadows of Judaism. But on the other hand, if we do not persevere in faith, then we shall not attain to it. That uh, will be like Israel of old, who because of unbelief did not enter into the inheritance. And so although we've begun to participate in eternal life, if we're truly converted, we will persevere, but thus these exhortations in the book of Hebrews to persevering faith. And that's what we have here in chapter 4. In Hebrews 4, where uh, the children of Israel are set before us as an example of those who did not enter into the promised rest because of unbelief. Verse 1, Therefore let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For it, indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And so the warning is that as the children of Israel failed to enter into their rest, even though they had the seventh-day Sabbath as the declaration that God had provided a rest for them, they had the land before them as a, a, a physical inheritance that was related to that rest, because of their unbelief, they did not enter into the rest. But then the writer says, even Joshua's bringing them into the land, 
did not fully realize the rest that is promised in the seventh-day Sabbath, the rest of God. And the reason that the writer gives is because of this warning that comes from Psalm 95, written after Joshua took the people into the land, that there remains, therefore, a rest. Take heed that you enter into it. It's on light of that that the uh, writer then, we'll read verses 6 through 10, writes this, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David after so long a time, just as he has, as, as has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. In other words, the rest given by Joshua did not fulfill the promise. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. And here we have the call to us as the New Testament people of God to persevere in entering into the rest. Don't turn back. Keep going as you rest on Christ. But it's in this exhortation uh, that we find this uh, promise with an explanation. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For, and notice that this is an explanatory then in verse 10, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, I believe that in these two verses we find a very clear New, Te New Testament statement with respect to an ongoing Sabbath-keeping and the day of that ongoing Sabbath-keeping. We see in the first place in verse 9 that God provides an ongoing Sabbath-keeping for His people. The writer reminds us in verse 10 that God has provided a rest. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And he's here pulling together the, the imagery of the seventh-day Sabbath with the uh, warning and promise implied in Psalm 95 uh, to remind us that uh, the true Sabbath rest has been provided in Christ. And this is the rest that God has established and provided for his people. It is the true rest. And thus, they nor we must turn away from that to man-made religions or to Judaism or to any other form of uh, an inferior picture of the rest. So we could go back to what we talked about the first hour this morning, that uh, all those old pictures of the rest were shadows and they were necessary pictures and types before the rest giver himself came. But now that the rest giver has come, We've been delivered from the shadows. It's in Christ that Sabbath rest has been established. And of course, we obtain that rest in Christ town by faith. And just once again, uh, a reminder to each one of us as we're here today uh, that you must be sure that you are resting in Christ alone by faith if you're to have your sins forgiven. 
You remember that the children of old did not enter into the rest because of unbelief. This beautiful rest is, is yours in Christ Jesus, the rest giver. He has said, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But you must come. You must not stay away because of unbelief, because of your love affair with your own sins, because of the pride of your own imaginations and the rituals of your own religion. No, you must leave all of that, forsake it, deny yourself, repent, and come to Christ. Because it's in Christ that God has established the true Sabbath rest. And as you have come to Christ, you must beware of the danger of falling away. We know the reality of the stony ground here. We all have known people in church of the Lord Jesus Christ who walked with us and exuberantly did so and now are no longer with us. And thus we have this further warning in verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. That our doctrine of perseverance Yes, God keeps us, but all those who are being kept by God do persevere in faith. And so we, by believing in Christ, enter into the rest. But we, as we believe in Christ, must persevere, persevere and enter into that final rest. And that's the first thing that we're reminded of here, that Christ has provided rest. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. But the writer is saying much more than that. When he tells us that there remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, he is telling us that God has appointed a day to observe and celebrate that rest. Now you say, how in the world do I get there? Well, throughout this entire section, 3, 7 through 4, 13, the writer uses one word to describe this rest that's been provided by Christ. It's a very general word in the Greek for rest. And it's used straight through the entire discussion, except in verse 9. In verse 9, the writer uses a word that is only used this one time in the New Testament. Some suggest that he actually himself coins the word uh, for his purposes here. There is an example in um, Greek literature in the writings of Plutarch in some manuscripts of this word it's the word sabbatismos. You can hear the word Sabbath in it. It's a noun form. And in Plutarch, it's used for a superstitious religious resting. Now, there's some question if that is the word he uses there, but uh, a number of manuscripts have uh, that word. In the New Testament, although we do not find the noun sabbatismos, we have the verb that the noun comes from. And each time... This verb is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's used to mean Sabbath-keeping. A couple of examples. Let's look at uh, Exodus 16.30. We referred to that, uh, I believe, the first night. As we see this example of, of the Sabbath at, between the creation ordinance and the giving of the fourth commandment. And you remember the context, the children of Israel were not to uh, collect manna on the Sabbath, but rather they were to collect a double portion the day before. Because the Sabbath, uh, 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 verses 29 and 30, is to be observed. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. 
Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out in his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. That's a very weak translation there. The word is they sabotaged on the seventh day in verse 30. It's this word sabbatizo. They kept the Sabbath. And the New American Standard does a great disservice by merely translating uh, this word uh, rest. We see the same thing in the passage we just looked at in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 32. I'm talking now about one of the festival Sabbaths. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you. And you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening. From evening until evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Now, it's the same word translated rested uh, in Exodus 16. You shall keep your Sabbath. You shall sabbatize. You shall observe a Sabbath rest. Now, this is the word that's used uniquely here in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. And I believe it's being used to make a play on words. Why in the world would the writer either coin or introduce uh, this very rare word into the discussion? Maybe he's not trying to make a theological point. Well, some would suggest well, it's for the matter of style. Well, it's way too late uh, to talk about style, you see. He's been using this other word all the way through. And it's, uh, this verse stands out like a bright red light because of this word that's used here, Translated Sabbath rest, which could better be translated in Hebrews 4.9, there remains therefore a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. Now the, what Sabbath rest does, it shows us that there is a play on words. I believe the word is looking both directions. It reminds us of the Sabbath rest that is ours in Christ. But because there's a Sabbath rest in Christ, there's a what for the people of God. Notice the word people of God. It, it's the same word from the Old Testament for the old covenant people. We are the covenant people of God. What remains for us is the covenant people of God who have the rest of Christ. There remains a Sabbath keeping. And thus we have here a very clear statement in the New Testament that a Sabbath keeping remains for the people of God in this play on words. A.W. Pink uh, writing on this section uh, has this to say. Here then is a plain positive, he doesn't use positive in the theological sense, a plain positive unequivocal declaration by the Spirit of God. There remaineth therefore a Sabbath keeping. Nothing could be simpler, nothing less ambiguous. The striking thing is that this statement occurs in the very epistle whose theme is the superiority of Christianity over Judaism. Written to those addressed as holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Therefore, it cannot be gainsaid that Hebrews 4.9 refers directly to the Christian Sabbath. Hence, we solemnly and emphatically declare that any man who says there is no Christian Sabbath takes direct issue with the New Testament scriptures. Now, Pink writes, I believe, this last phrase because, you know, he came out of dispensationalism. And he was well aware of this mentality that said, unless the New Testament repeats it, um, I don't have to do it. And he didn't buy into that himself, but here he simply throws down the challenge. For those of you that have to have a clear New Testament reference, here it is. Can you deny this? The New Testament teaches that there remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. 
And I say the same thing to any of you that are yet wrestling with the issue at this level. There remains a Sabbathismos. There remains a Sabbath keeping. It is in no way contradictory to the fact that the Sabbath rest has been purchased by Christ. We've begun to enjoy the reality of eternity. We are participants in eternity right now. But that does not absolve us from the fact that there remains a Sabbath keeping for us as the new covenant people of God. It's a clear New Testament declaration that we are to keep the Sabbath. Now, we move on to verse 10. We see not only that God provides for us an ongoing Sabbath keeping, but we also see that God establishes the day for the ongoing Sabbath keeping. You notice the connection that verse 10 begins with the little connective for. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. And what the writer is doing is saying there remains a Sabbath keeping because, I believe he's saying, because Christ has rested from his work of redemption. There's a parallel here. You can see it. The parallel is is that, that one entered into his rest from his works, paralleling the rest of God from creation. So as God rested on the seventh day at the end of creation, Christ rested on the first day at the end of the work of redemption. Now let's unpack this a little bit. There are those, and uh, for example, the NIV translation suggests this, and a number of modern commentators say that the rest referred to here is the believer entering into the rest of God by resting from his sinful works. So the parallel is, is as God rested at creation from his works, the believer, and this would in no way annul what we said in verse 9, there remains a Sabbath keeping, uh, the believer has rested from his sinful works uh, as he comes to Christ. But there are three reasons well, I believe that this verse cannot be saying that, but is teaching positively uh, the parallel between the rest of God at creation and the rest of God the Son uh, at the work of redemption. These reasons are not um, original with me. I got them from John Owen. Uh, the first one is the impropriety of comparing God's works and God's rest with a sinner's works and a sinner's rest. An impropriety both with respect to the works and the nature of rest. God's works are holy and good. God looked at his works and said, all is very good. The works of the sinner are not good works. They are evil. They are corrupt. They are filthy. And it, there's no parallel, there's no comparison to compare the works of God from which he rested and the works of the sinner from which he rested. The same is true with the character of rest. We noted that God's rest was a not only a cessation, but an enjoyment. God's rest was a looking at his work and saying, wow. It was a holy contemplation. It was a great delight expressed by that word that he refreshed himself. But that's not what a sinner's rest from his works is, is it? 
The rest of repentance is the rest of denial. It is the rest of abnegation. It is the rest of rejection. It's the rest of holy abhorrence and hatred. There's no parallel between God taking delight in His works and the sinner resting from His works in Christ, repenting of them. Now because of that impropriety, Dr. Gaffin offers a unique interpretation here and he says it's the believer resting from his desert works the good works of our pilgrimage entering into his eternal rest the problem with that is that uh, the verse 10 is in uh, the past and uh, Dr. Gaffin has to make this rest in the future it's a rest that will occur when we enter into heaven that we're now in our desert works and so at least and he and I discuss this a little bit at least in, in my mind Uh, This does not work. And so, we obviously must be talking about a holy work and a holy rest when it says that he uh, rested from his works and entered into his rest. You follow that? All right. The second reason is the use of the singular pronoun. You notice here that uh, this is all in the singular. The one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Well, what's so unique about this? Well, look back uh, throughout this uh, paragraph where we find this exhortation. You see that invariably the believer who both has entered into rest and is exhorted to enter into rest is spoken of collectively. Uh, It's spoken of in terms of we and us and you all. Uh, Just look at some examples. Verse 14 of chapter 3. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast. Um, Verse 19, And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore let us fear. Chapter verse 2, For indeed we have had good news. Uh, We could go on through, just look at, at verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. And you can see in this very brief survey that as the believer, as a part of the people of God, is being exhorted to enter into the rest, that the plural is always used. We, us, you all. And that causes verse 10 to stand out all the more because we're talking now about an individual, the one who has entered into his rest. He has rested. And thus Owen points out that this must be talking about Christ in contrast to the people of God. It's Christ who enters the rest in his resurrection. Now, the objection here is offered, if this is true, uh, why is it introduced so indefinitely? Why doesn't the writer say that as Christ entered his rest? Well, I think because of the context, we don't need that. Both sides of this passage refer to Christ. We just read in verse 14, we become partakers of Christ if we hold fast. The whole exhortation is to cling to Christ. And then we come back to Christ at the end of the exhortation. In verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And of course, the passing through the heavens is doing what? He's established in his rest as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so the the singular pronoun points to Christ in contrast to believers who are being exhorted here 
to uh, persevere in faith in their resting in Christ. The third argument then, we've seen the impropriety of comparing the work and rest of God with the work and rest of the sinner. We've seen that this verse 10 focuses on an individual, not on the people of God. The third argument offered is the rest spoken of in verse 10 is a final rest. It is an accomplished rest, whereas although we've begun to participate in that rest, you look in verse 11, we're told that we must persevere to enter into that rest. Now that rest seems to be pointing back to verse 10. Which rest? The rest of the one who rested. He has rested. Let us now persevere to enter into that rest. A rest accomplished in verse 10, a rest stretching out before us yet as the people of God. We're not yet fully there. We must persevere. We must be diligent that we enter fully into his rest. And so for these reasons, I believe what we have here is the most remarkable theological parallel. Just think about it for a moment because we've already hinted at and intimated throughout all these messages the relationship of the rest to the work of God and the seventh day rest both to creation but also in a type, as a type of what is to come. It was fitting. We've got two great works of God. We've got creation and we have redemption. When creation was finished, done in six days, on the seventh day, God rested from that first great work. In doing so, he established the pattern of Sabbath rest. He made a declaration of an eternal rest that we could enter into his rest with him. Because of the fall, uh, he then promised the rest giver who would come in the future. Thus, we come from our labors into the rest at the end of the week, being reminded that we're yet under the burden and bondage in the old covenant and the rest giver is going to come. It's something we're looking forward to. Of course, it's the work of Christ that has dispelled the shadows that we saw in the last hour. And this is the second great work of God. It's the greatest work of God, this work of redemption. And it is a work that's as fitting of a rest as is the work of creation. That when the second great work of God is completed, God, the Son, the God-man, enters into a rest as well. Now a rest that declares that salvation has been accomplished. No longer are we having to look forward to its accomplishment. It's been accomplished. We are participating in it now. But we keep the Sabbath to remind us that we do have this rest in Christ, but we are pressing on to enter into it fully in glory. You see the parallel? Now when did Christ enter into his rest? Not on the cross when he cried out, it is finished. What was finished was the penal satisfaction of his death, the hell-bearing part of the atonement. But there was yet what the Apostle Creed refers to as death and burial, necessary parts of the suffering of Christ, the concluding part of his humiliation, that he was not resting from his work of atonement when he lay in the grave on the seventh day, the Jewish Sabbath. He was completing his work of atonement. 
Thus, on the first day of the week, when he rose again from the dead, that was the declaration that God the Father had fully accepted the work of God the Son, and in the justification of the Savior is the justification of all those for whom he died. Remember how Paul puts it. He was delivered up for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. If he'd been left in the grave, his enemies would have been correct. He was rejected by God on the cross. He was cursed and condemned. If he remained in the grave, that would be the sentence against him. But on the first day, when God the Father raised him from the dead, God was saying, He is perfect. He is innocent. He is vindicated. He is justified. And it's all completed. Now, it's being applied by our King in heaven who's entered into that rest. He applies that rest to us and He keeps us. He brings us to Himself in that rest. But you see how fitting it is then that He rests on the first day of the week. You know, I just thought about this this week. It seems there could only be two days for a Sabbath if you keep the pattern of six and one. It couldn't be the second day of the week or the third day of the week because it wouldn't be six and one. Either it was going to be the end of the week or the beginning of the week. And that was all part of this pattern of God. Somebody mentioned last night we were talking that, you know, God loves pattern. He does love pattern. He is himself perfectly holy, which is a perfect symmetry. There's perfect balance and pattern in God. And that's, that's why so many of his works have a pattern to them. They're not mere literary device imposed on Scripture. It is the way that God works. And thus he's worked in this pattern of six and one, six days of labor to rest. Rest now and six days of labor to show that we've entered into our rest. Now this is confirmed by the inferences of Scripture. Why is it that every resurrection appearance of Christ is recorded, not just the resurrection, but the appearances on the first day of the week? You see, the Savior is now saying something to His apostles and through them to His church. This is the day the Lord has made. The stone that was rejected by the builders has now been vindicated by God on the first day of the week and thus every appearance of Christ who is the church recorded in Scripture was the first day of the week, even the appearance to John on the Isle of Patmos. Thus the Savior by His own action, not just in resurrection, but by appearance, is sanctifying the first day even as God the Father by His words sanctified the seventh day. I've already shown you how the early, or hinted at the fact that the early church talked about uh, John's reference to Christ uh, appearing on the eighth day. Well, the eighth day is what? The eighth day is the first day of the week. And they use the phrase eighth day as a reflection to the end of the Jewish festivals in the resurrection of Christ who says to all, come to me and drink if you're thirsty. And thus the early church talked about the Lord's Day as the eighth day, the first day of the week. When did the early church meet? Well, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it is a proper inference that they met regularly on the first day of the week. It seems that Paul himself delayed his trip 
even though he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, and stayed a week so that he might then meet with the church in Acts 20, verse 7. It says he's in Troas. He, he stayed seven days. And on the first day of the week, remember, he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. But on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, not gathered together to say goodbye to Paul, we were gathered together to break bread, which here is a technical phrase for the observance of the Lord's Supper. On the first day of the week, we were gathered together to break bread, and we know that Paul then preaches to them in that service. Or as we saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul directs all of the churches when they assemble on the first day of the week to take up an offering for the poor. He knew they would be gathered on the first day of the week. And that's the day he wanted the collections taken for the poor. And then we find that most beautiful expression in Revelation 1.10 where John tells us he's on the Isle of Patmos on the Lord's Day. Now the, the phrase Lord's Day is much richer than, than it appears. It's not just a possessive, you know, John's house, Carol's car. No, the word Lord that's used there is only used one other time in the New Testament. And that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talking about the Lord's Supper. It's a peculiar form that means in, in 1 Corinthians 11 the supper that belonged in a peculiar way to the Lord. And we know the difference between the Lord's Supper and our supper. The sacramental nature of this peculiar meal. Well, that's the word that's used in Revelation 1.10, the Lord's Day. The day that was in a peculiar way, the Lord's Day. Now, why was his name placed on it? Why did it belong to him in a special way? Because it was the day of his resurrection. It was a day he entered into his rest. And thus, it's the day that the church celebrates his rest, her rest, and strengthens herself to persevere in that rest until she comes to her final rest. There's a great summary of this uh, in a statement by Voss that I have uh, in the book. Inasmuch as the Old Testament was still looking forward to the performance of the messianic work, naturally the days of labor to it come first. The day of rest falls at the end of the week. We, under the new covenant, look back upon the accomplished work of Christ. We, therefore, first celebrate the rest in principle procured by Christ, although the Sabbath also still remains a sign looking forward to the final eschatological rest. The Old Testament people of God had to typify in their life the future developments of redemption. Consequently, the precedence of labor and the consequence of rest had to find expression in their calendar. The New Testament church has no typical function to perform for the types have been fulfilled. But it has a great historic event to commemorate, the performance of the work by Christ and the entrance of Him and of His people through Him upon the state of never-ending rest. We do not sufficiently realize the profound sense the early church had of the epic-making significance of the appearance and especially of the resurrection of the Messiah. The latter was to them nothing less than the bringing in of a new, the second creation. And they felt that this ought to find expression in the placing of the Sabbath with reference to the other days of the week. Believers knew themselves in a measure partakers of the Sabbath fulfillment. 
If the one creation required one sequence, then the other required another. It has been strikingly observed that our Lord died on the eve of the Jewish Sabbath at the end of one of these typical weeks of labor by which his work and its consummation were prefigured. And Christ entered upon his rest so that the Jewish Sabbath comes to lie between, was, as it were, disposed of, buried in his grave.